0: bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve, Revealing the True Light. Welcome to the 21st podcast of Revealing the True Light. We're going to be continuing our study on Catholic beliefs, true or false, In the last three episodes, we've covered subjects like the infallibility of the pope, infant baptism, the exclusivity of the priesthood, ecclesiastical clothing, celibacy, confession, absolution, and penance. All of those are important foundational doctrines in Catholicism. Now, on this particular podcast, we're going to be answering these three questions. Number one, what is the rosary and why do Catholics use it in prayer? Number two, how do Catholics determine who qualifies to be a saint? And then number three, why do Catholics petition the departed saints to pray in their behalf? Now, I believe I am especially qualified to talk about Catholicism, to share my heart on Catholicism, because I was raised Catholic. I was very devoted as an altar boy for many years, sometimes at the church four or five days out of the week, and then at a certain point in my life, I was on my way to the monastery to commit myself to the life of a monk and then God changed my plans at the last moment. So I understand the heartbeat of Catholicism. I was very devoted. Now I am an interdenominational Christian, a follower of Jesus. I do not belong to any organization, but I have a heart. I have a deep desire to reach out and touch Catholics and share with them the transformational experiences that have revolutionized my walk with God, including being born again and being filled with the Holy Spirit and these genuine, authentic experiences with God that just brought me to a whole new level of intimacy with him. But this program is going to be focusing on the rosary and also the intercession of the saints and who qualifies to be a saint within Catholicism. The rosary is just a group of beads on a chain or on a string, maybe knots on a string. Similar to the rosary, a number of religions use prayer beads in order to methodically Uh, pray their prayers in the right order, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and the Baha'i faith. However, it's important to see that Buddhism is basically atheistic, and Hinduism believes in an impersonal life force as the highest reality. And so why would those who profess Christianity use a prayer approach like those who do not understand the true makeup of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet these three are one God, and that God is a personal God, not an impersonal life force. So why should we use methods like they use when we have access to the creator of the universe? Historically, theologians believe the rosary can be traced to Saint Dominic who ministered in southern France in the latter part of the 12th century and the beginning of the 13th century. That was over a millennium from the time when Jesus walked on the earth, so the rosary was not practiced. Then among his disciples, it was not known as a method of prayer for hundreds of years. It was not a part of the doctrine of the apostles in the beginning. Let's talk about how someone actually prays the rosary. It first consists of a crucifix with the form of the crucified Savior, a reminder of his sacrificial death, something that should absolutely dominate our hearts and minds. Paul said, I don't want to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. From the crucifix, there is a short chain leading to a circular chain, and on both of those chains, there are 59 beads that are reminders to pray certain prayers. The one praying the rosary first makes the sign of the cross. That's touching the forehead and the heart and the left shoulder and the right shoulder while saying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the sign of the cross. And certainly it is a way of consciously recommitting to a crucified life, to faith in the cross and that not alone, but also sharing the cross by dying to the world and dying to self. Then the one who prays the rosary says the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to repeat that for you right now. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, amen. Now, most of the Apostles' Creed I fully agree with, but there are a few points I question or I would want to enhance the meaning of. For instance, when it said he descended into hell, that's using an older translation of the word Sheol. In Hebrew, the word Sheol represents the underworld. And prior to the resurrection of Jesus, both the righteous and the wicked were in the underworld separated by an impassable gulf. The righteous were on one side in a place called Abraham's bosom, and the wicked in a place of torment on the other side. So Jesus did not just descend into the realm of the wicked, which is what the word hell implies, but he went into the underworld to preach the gospel to the dead, Peter said. Now that in itself needs to be a teaching. uh, So I won't go any further into it. But also the other two things, that I question is the part that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Well, I no longer believe that the Catholic Church is the only true church. I do not believe that you can discern who is in the church by organizational membership. Those who are in the true church of God share a common experience, the experience of being born again where the Lord Jesus Christ enters into your heart. Ephesians 3, 17 says, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. And that's the spiritual rebirth Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus in John chapter three. That's what brings a person into membership in the church, not signing your name on a roll, but surrendering your heart to the reality of God. Also, it said, I believe in the communion of saints. And we know, as we're going to study in a few moments, that the communion of saints within Catholic doctrine means a number of things, including petitioning departed saints to pray in our behalf, which I no longer believe. But I will explain why in just a little while. Now, the rosary must be prayed in the exact prescribed sequence to be the most efficacious and also If it is not done correctly, the maximum amount of indulgences will not be earned. And indulgences are merits enabling a person to escape time in purgatory, either the one who is praying the rosary or someone they dedicate the praying of the rosary to. The first bead after the crucifix represents the Our Father. Now, I'm sure almost anyone listening to this podcast is familiar with this prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter six and Luke chapter 11. But for the sake of a person who might not be familiar with it, I'll quote it. "'Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. A little side note here just recently, Pope Francis released a statement, a decree that instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we should say, do not let us fall into temptation, which I believe is actually a better rendering of that passage because when you say, lead us not into temptation, it almost sounds like God is the one seducing people into a trap of evil. And we know that certainly is not God. The devil and his demons woo the human race into evil. The sin that is resident in our fallen nature woos us into the grip of evil. The world system in all of its corruption woos us, but certainly God will deliver us from temptation. And so that's the way I believe we should pray it. The next three beads in the rosary represent three Hail Marys that are quoted while meditating on faith, hope, and love, which are three very important attributes, faith, hope, and love. And then there is a single bead that stands for the Glory Be Prayer. After that, you get to the circular part of the rosary, and the first 10 beads are 10 Hail Marys. Then there's another single bead, which is the Glory Be Prayer at the end of the 10 Hail Marys, and then the Our Father right before another decade. And there are five decades, or five groups of 10 beads representing Hail Marys. So let's, uh, just so you're familiar with the way Catholics pray, if you're not a Catholic, or for the sake of teaching on this, let me quote the Hail Mary. This is how it goes. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I'll reserve my comment on that till a little later in this episode. Then the Glory Be Prayer goes like this. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Now, there is an added purpose in praying the rosary on a weekly basis for Catholics. Each day, the one praying is memorializing one of 20 mysteries of the faith, and these are divided into five joyful mysteries, five luminous mysteries, five sorrowful mysteries, and the five glorious mysteries. Now, I'm not gonna go into all of them, but the sorrowful mysteries, for instance, are the agony in the garden, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, the carrying of the cross, and the crucifixion. And so as a person prays the rosary, they are pondering some of the most momentous things that happened in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then once the entire rosary is finished, The person praying makes the sign of the cross and says in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Back in 1917, it was claimed that Mary appeared to certain individuals at Fatima and she supposedly made this statement. She said, pray the rosary every day in honor of Our Lady of the Rosary to obtain peace in the world for she alone can save it. She alone can save it. I would counter that, no, that is dependent on the Prince of Peace, for he alone can save this world. He is Yahweh Shalom, the Lord, our peace, and only his peace, the peace of God that passes understanding will change this planet. On a website called rosarycenter.org, it also states that every rosary increases Mary's power to crush the head of the serpent and to destroy his evil power in this world. But I would counter that statement by saying back in Genesis, when the Lord pronounced judgment on the serpent, he said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between your seed and her seed— speaking of the Messiah to come, and he shall bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head. That role is only going to be fulfilled by the Son of God himself. My response to the practice of praying the rosary, I think it's significant that right before Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, he said, use not vain repetitions like the heathen do, so, to repeat a prayer over and over like that is something similar to a heathen practice. And oftentimes in other religions, you have to coerce some deity to move in your behalf, there's no personal relationship or there's a belief in an impersonal power that has to be manipulated by the right incantation, but you would never approach a personal God this way. You wouldn't go to a neighbor uh, that you wanna borrow a wheelbarrow from and repeat, I desire to borrow a wheelbarrow. A 100 times. By the time you get to the third or fourth repetition of that request, your neighbor is going to shut the door in your face because that's an insult to his intelligence. He will respond to a communication from you that is very understandable the first time it flows from your lips. And prayers should be that kind of communication with God, a spontaneous flow of worshipful phrases that are not ritualistic or repetitive, but are springing from the heart, the wellspring of worship within your heart. It is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart when it comes to prayer. And quite often, repeated prayer becomes words without a heart. Now, appealing to Mary in the rosary, has got to take some of our attention. The Hail Mary prayer, again, goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And then it says, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Well, that's acknowledging that you are a sinner. When biblically, if you want to be technically correct about it. Sinners are those outside of a relationship with God, those who have not yet been converted, those who are under the curse, but once you are delivered from sin, you are no longer a sinner. You may have faults and errors and sometimes fall back into sin, but you don't stay there. You don't wallow there. You recover from it. You're no longer identified as a sinner. You're actually identified as a saint. Now that's something we need to go into right now. Canonization. How does the Catholic Church arrive at calling a person a saint? Well, in the most historical sense, it takes a papal declaration that a certain deceased member of the church can be venerated by the Catholic faithful. Popes are the ones who make that decree, at least from the 10th century onward. Prior to that, bishops may have uh, allowed the people to venerate a certain person, but from the 10th century onward, it was the Pope who functioned in that role. And that led to a belief that you could petition the saints to pray in your behalf. I'll get to that in just a moment. But what does the Bible really teach about saints and who qualifies to be called a saint? Well, Jude 1.3 says, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And that's an all-inclusive statement that is an umbrella declaration over the entire body of Christ. Colossians 1.12 says, "'Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us "'to be partakers of the inheritance "'of the saints in light.'" And that's not talking about an exclusive few, that's talking about all believers. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says, "'To the church of God which is at Corinth, "'to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus.'" called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so according to that verse, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is subsequently called to be a saint. And what is a saint? What's the definition? A saint is simply one who has been sanctified. And the word sanctified means to be cleansed from the defilement of sin, to be made holy in the sight of God, and to be separated unto God for his sacred use. It's got a triune meaning, to be cleansed from the defilement of sin, to be made holy by God in his sight, and also to be set apart for his use. He's coming back again with 10,000s of his saints. And that's not talking about a select group. That's talking about all of those who are in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do Catholics petition departed saints to pray in their behalf? Is there a biblical basis for this practice? Can these revered persons actually respond to the millions who venerate them and hope for their intercession? Well, let me give you the scriptures that have been used to prove this as a biblically-based doctrine by those who embrace the idea. In Revelation chapter six, verses nine and 10, when the fifth seal is open, John said he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And they cried saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So they're involved in a passionate prayer. And and if they can do that, then the assumption is they can also seek God in our behalf. Then in Revelation chapter eight, verses one, three, and four, the seventh seal is open And another angel having a golden censer comes and stands at an altar in heaven. And he's given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And so the assumption is made that that the saints being referred to are the saints of heaven. But it says, with the prayers of all the saints." And that means all of the saints who have ever lived in this world and all of the prayers that have been prayed by the saints from the beginning of the new covenant until the end of this era. Now, also they've used the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to undergird this concept. And that story talks about how a rich man died and lifted up his eyes in hell. And he cried out to Father Abraham, who was across the impassable gulf. Over in Abraham's bosom, and he begged Abraham to send Lazarus to him with some water to cool his tongue because he was tormented in the flames. But that's no proof of the possibility of the intercession of departed saints because that was a wicked man not making a request of God, but making a request of Abraham. And there's nothing in that story, whether it's a parable or a real happening, to imply that the intercession of saints can take place. The other source for this particular doctrine is actually in 2 Maccabees 15, verses 14 through 17, where it describes Jeremiah praying for the people of Israel and the holy city even though Jeremiah had already been dead 400 years. That doesn't necessarily verify the doctrine. That book is not accepted among the inspired books of the New Testament that are a part of the canon of scripture according to the Protestant. That is not sufficient proof that the doctrine of the intercession of saints should be embraced because 2 Maccabees chapter 15 may or may not be inspired literature. However, we can respond to this in the strongest terms, because in Deuteronomy 18 verses nine through 13, God spoke very powerfully against this practice of contacting the dead. He said, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow after the abominations of those nations. And then he spoke of a number of occult practices like witchcraft, and sorcery, and conjuring spells, and acting as a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Now, I know there's a difference between a person conducting a seance and a Catholic person praying to a departed saint to intercede in his or her behalf, but still both of them fall under the category of contacting the dead, which we are definitely commanded not to do in Scripture. Probably the most powerful argument is just based on the logic of what is going on. Just suppose a million people around the globe are petitioning Peter at the same time to pray in their behalf in order to process that much information. Peter would have to be omniscient. He'd have to be, in a sense, omnipresent. He'd have to be present with each one of those individuals who are praying or petitioning him to pray in their behalf. And that's absolutely two attributes that belong only to God. Only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipresent. I do well just to process one conversation with one person. I cannot imagine trying to process hundreds of thousands of conversations simultaneously. No, when you review it in that light, the idea of the intercession of the departed saints is one that should definitely be discarded.